Leigh Hameson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School, on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City and nationally. We've been preempted on and off for the last few weeks, but we hope we're now here to stay now every Wednesday at 10 a.m., barring any more unforeseen circumstances. If you like the show and want to make sure we stick around, Please become a WBAA buddy to our show, Talk Out of School, by logging into give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602. That's again, call 516-620-3602. Now we're also a podcast that you can subscribe to Talk Out of School at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. During the next hour, we'll be talking to Diane Ravitch, the eminent education historian advocate who has a new book coming out next month called Slaying Goliath. She's also an eminent education historian, has written something like 18 books, blogs daily, and founded a national education advocacy group called the Network for, for Public Education. Diane, are you there? I am here. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, you have a new book coming out on January 20th called Slaying Goliath, The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save American Public Schools. Can you tell us a little bit about your book and what it involves? Sure. Uh, well, as you know, I have been uh, trying to reverse some very ruinous federal and state policies over the past 10 years. Uh, particularly those that promote the privatization of public schools, either through charters or vouchers, and also the federal emphasis on high-stakes testing, uh, requiring every child in, in grades 3 through 8 to take a test every single year, uh, something that is found in no other nation that I've been able to discover, um, and which has really turned our schools into being completely test-focused and test-prepped and so forth, uh, which undermines education. And I've written two other books on the subject. Um, the first was called The Death and Life of the Great American School System, where I didn't say the life and death. I said the death and life because I believe that that people would get together one day and turn all this around. The second was a dissection of everything that these so-called reformers are doing. It's called, was, it's called Reign of Error, the hoax of the privatization movement, because I realized that when people hear education reformers, they think, oh, great, these are education reformers. I want to reform education, too. But it turns out they really don't want to reform education. I'm speaking of the billionaires and the Wall Street hedge fund managers who are deeply involved in, in promoting charter schools and vouchers and high-stakes testing. They're not reformers. And uh, so I wanted to lay out, uh, first of all, who they are, but also what we should be doing instead. And I did that in Reign of Error. But this book is very different because this book is about the, resist, the resistance to these policies. And what I predict is that the so-called reform movement, which I call, 
I rename it the disruption movement because this is what they actually are doing and have accomplished. Uh, this effort to disrupt schools has been very successful. Schools all over the country have been disrupted uh, by the vast spending of people like Betsy DeVos and, and the Koch brothers, now that one Koch brother, uh, and um, the, the Walton family in particular, the family that owns the Walmart stores and is the richest family in the country, if not the entire world. Uh, what they've accomplished has been to do a lot of disruption and no reform. And what I'd say, what I do in this book is to describe the people who are fighting back and to reach the incredible conclusion that they have already lost and that the only thing that keeps them going is that they have such vast amounts of money that they're able to pay people to continue disrupting district after district, uh, but they have no hope of ever improving education because that's not what they're about. And so it's a, it's a shout-out to the heroes, and I have to say, uh, you know, uh, Lady Hampson, the, uh, you're one of the heroes of the book, um, but you're included in a long list of heroes who have changed uh, the face of this fight from one of uh, people who, feel, who are feeling hopelessness in the face of this onslaught of corporate uh, power and billionaires uh, to people who are winning victory after victory despite having no funding. Wanna, yeah, hi. Uh, yeah, do you, I just want to be sure you're still there. Yeah, do you want to um, mention some of the other heroes um, in your book who've been fighting sure. against the forces of disruption and privatization as, as, you, as you depict it? Sure. Well, one of the – I tell a, a lot of anecdotes and stories about the people who fought back against uh, this, these billionaires. I have a whole chapter devoted to simply listing all the billionaires and corporations – that have jumped onto this privatization uh, movement. And uh, then I spend the rest of the book talking about the, those who have fought back. Uh, one person that comes to mind is a civil rights leader named G2 Brown. Uh, G2 uh, led a hunger strike in Chicago that lasted for 34 days. And he and 11 other people who were part of his group uh, opened up lawn chairs right in front of the Walter Diet High School, which was slated to be closed and replaced with charter schools and small schools and you know, the usual kind of thing that we become accustomed, we became accustomed to in New York City under Mayor Bloomberg. And G2 said, we will not allow you to close the last open enrollment public school in the Bronzeville community, which is the black community. And they uh, went on a hunger strike for 34 days, and eventually, uh, on the 34th day, Rahm Emanuel gave up. And he said, I give up, and here I'm going to spend money to fix the school up and restore it. It's now the Walter Diet High School for the Arts, and there was a ribbon-cutting ceremony. They, they, the city, and instead of closing it, they invested about $15 million into a, making it a state-of-the-art high school. So that was one of the hero stories. There are many more. There's a story about what happened in Massachusetts where the Walton family and a whole long list of, of billionaires and Wall Street hedge fund managers decided that what Massachusetts needed was lots more charter schools. And so they poured millions of dollars into a referendum. This was in 2016. And um, the, the uh, Massachusetts Teachers Association uh, rallied the uh, civil rights groups across the state, ra rallied parent organizations, uh, and got together with all of these groups, school committees, and made them aware that every new dollar for a charter school would be a dollar taken away from a public school. And uh, whereas the referendum in 2016 was the original polls taken by the Walton Foundation, which was sponsoring all of this, 
this is the Waltons of Arkansas trying to change the school system in the state of Massachusetts. Uh, the original polls that the Waltons had showed that this measure to expand charter schools would pass easily. Uh, in fact, it was overwhelmingly defeated because of the intensive campaign of public education uh, that its opponents engaged in. Uh, then there are many more stories, a story about the school board in a very affluent district in Colorado called Douglas County uh, that had been taken over by far-right uh, libertarians, and they wanted to start spending public money on vouchers for religious schools. And uh, the community organized and organized and fought back and fought back, lost one election after another, and then finally swept out the entire board and dropped their, their request, which was going to the Supreme Court. But they withdrew their, their case and said, we're going to uh, raise money to fix our public schools. Uh, there are many, many stories like this in there. You know, the thing is about this book is I could have kept adding to it because the stories just keep rolling on. Uh, for example, I didn't I – did, I, the book went to press before the Milwaukee School Board was swept by the Working Families Party, and this was in the last election. Uh, in, in Los Angeles, there was a crucial election for an empty seat, and it was won by a passionate devotee of public education, uh, Jackie Goldberg, who has for years opposed charter schools and privatization – and she took a, a seat and changed the balance on the school board so that all the millions and millions that had been spent to capture it for the billionaires uh, just disappeared overnight because uh, the uh, pro-public school people uh, were able to claim uh, at least half the board, if not a majority. But these stories keep going on. Just yesterday I read that Chicago has received no new applications uh, this year for charter schools because they're losing enrollment, and um, the, the, their moment has passed. So this is a, uh, really a tribute to the resistance, and that's what I write about. It's a story of hope and encouragement. So this is, this is wonderful. Um, one of the um, billionaires that you didn't mention just now but has spent a lot of money trying to elect school boards in various districts that are pro-privatization – is our former mayor, um, Michael Bloomberg, who is now running for president. Um, he's apparently one of the biggest contributors to pro-charter school board candidates across the country. Is that right? That is true. Uh, Mike Bloomberg has put money into races, school board races, city, uh, district races, uh, statewide races, uh, to, to uh, help people who are not only pro-charter but in some cases pro-voucher. What and I find it's really very disappointing. Yeah, because, and what uh, I find interesting is that that is not something that he publicizes very much in his presidential campaign or at all. Instead, you know, what, what he talks about is how devoted he is at, to education, and he ne he has never, at least in, in my viewing of his many commercials, I see him uh, photograph with children and in and, and classrooms and so forth. But what he doesn't talk about is the massive disruption that he imposed on New York City during his 12 years as mayor. And um, his policies were exactly the same policies as George W. Bush. And during his mayoralty, he did uh, precisely what No Child Left Behind, which was George W. Bush's policies, uh, federal law, exactly what George W. Bush would have done had George W. Bush been our mayor. And that is to make test scores the deciding factor in everything and uh, to close schools with low test scores, open new schools, to break up comprehensive schools, and to replace them with small schools. And uh, I have a grandson right now who's applying for high school, 
and it is the most uh, difficult maze for any parent or student to uh, get through because there are no more neighborhood high schools, and everything is choice. And uh, my grandson, who lives in Brooklyn, has not only gone all over Brooklyn but all over Manhattan and, in some cases, even Queens, uh, trying to find what high school is the right fit for him. Uh, And very, very, uh, I, I would say, comprehensive high schools like Jamaica High School, which had low test scores, the reason schools have low test scores is not because they have bad teachers, which is the myth per, uh, that's been uh, perpetrated by these so-called uh, phony reformers. Uh, low scores are the result of poverty. So schools that were serving very poor children and had high numbers of children with disabilities, high numbers of children who didn't speak English, they had less low test scores. Instead of recognizing that the scores are caused by uh, living in poverty and having disabilities, uh, the the city of New York and many other cities accepted this idea that low test scores meant bad teachers. And so they embarked on a policy of closing schools for their scores, breaking them up and opening five schools in a building that previously held one big school. Well, this multiplies the administrative cost, and it also gets rid of programs for English language learners because the small schools are not, don't have the capacity to have programs for English language learners, and they don't have, if they're for 300 or 400 kids, they will not be able to offer the advanced courses either uh, in math and science that were available in the comprehensive high schools. Or so even we've been some of the arts and, and electives. And it's very that, difficult to say yeah. uh, that we're improved because of it. And they don't offer a lot of electives and arts programs and even sports teams sometimes. So one of the, one of the issues about choice that I, that I thought of when you mentioned that word is that there really isn't the choice that you would want when your kid is applying to high school in New York City. It's the schools that are choosing the kid and not you choosing the schools. Uh, parents right. Well, well and, the uh, and Mayor Bloomberg and Joel Klein introduced something that they uh, got from the medical world or, or applications for medical schools, which is really totally inappropriate for going to a, a, a public school and choosing a public school that's convenient to you as well as one that has courses that you want to take. Uh, and they're using this medical model where the student applies to 12 schools. Uh, the 12 schools make their choices known, and then a computer matches the schools and the students. And um, some students end up getting matched nowhere, and then they have to be placed after the uh, rounds have been finished. It's all very confusing, and I can tell you that from the point of view of a student, it's totally confusing because they don't know who will accept them and who will want them, and they don't know if their first choice wants them. And they they have no idea where they're going to end up in school until the the uh, choices come out. It's a little bit like applying to college, but high school is not college. It's worse uh, because many, in many, colleges uh, you do sometimes get accepted to more than one school. Right. And in the New York City high school application process, you apply to twelve, and you get matched to only one. And it may not be any of your top twelve choices. It may not be in, right. even in your borough, and it may not even feature in, uh, you know any courses that you're particularly interested in taking. So it really is a very complicated, confusing, and um, really inadequate system to ensure that, that your child or any child is getting the education they deserve. And as you pointed well, exactly. out... exactly. And I think that what's especially yeah. problematic is that the people at the top are just washing their hands of any accountability for making every school the best possible school instead saying, well, we're going to just throw out there that there are well over a 1,000 schools, maybe by now there are 1,500 schools, 
there are hundreds of high schools, and you choose, and you match yourself to the school you want. They'll match you. You may or may not get what you want, but uh, it's up to you to maneuver this incredibly complicated system. Um, my son, is, uh, who's been going through this process on behalf of my grandson, uh, says this is the most complicated thing he's ever seen, and he just can't imagine how a parent who doesn't have an endless amount of time can possibly figure out how to maneuver through this system. They, they, uh, there's just not the time. Uh, parents, the parents construct spreadsheets. I mean, you're supposed to visit these schools. You're supposed to uh, look at them in these huge um, forums and and open houses. You need spreadsheets to make uh, appointments and and call up in early in the morning to make an appointment. And it is incredibly stressful and complicated. I can say. Um, there, one other issue I wanted to touch with you is the fact that there are hearings next Monday of the State Assembly on mayoral control. Uh, you're one of the most knowledgeable educational historians of New York City schools, if not the top um, historian in the country on, on our school system. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of school governance in, in New York City and what you think about the current system of mayoral control? Sure. Uh, well, my first book was written many years ago. I, I got into this field uh, in the late 1960s, so I've been doing this for more than half a century. But my first book was a history, a history of the New York City Public Schools. And what prompted me to write it was that at that time, in the late 1960s when I started it, uh, this city was embroiled in a, a two-month teacher strike, two months of teacher strike, if you can believe that. And I know you can believe it because you're almost as well. You're not as old as I am, but anyway, almost. there was a strike in 1968 where the schools were closed down for two months, and there was a great battle over decentralization. Uh, that led to the schools being uh, decentralized in 1969. Before that, there had been a, uh, a New York City Board of Education. It was an independent board of education. It chose its own superintendent, and back and forth over the years, the mayor had more or less. Appointments. Sometimes the mayor appointed everyone on the board, but only after a screening committee had reviewed their qualifications. Uh, other times he appointed people uh, based on their having been recommended by the boroughs. There, there were a variety of mechanisms to prevent the mayor from having complete and total control. So the schools were under mayoral control for most of the 20th century, but the mayor was not directly in charge. He appointed an independent board of education, and the person in charge called the superintendent of schools uh, reported to the board, not to the mayor. In 1969, the schools were decentralized, and the mayor there was still a board of education, but the local boards had a lot of authority. And then that was whittled away in 1996 uh, when the school superintendent at that time, Rudy Crew, uh, got Albany to agree to uh, give more of the power over hiring and firing decisions to the central board and not to the local boards because a few of them were uh, being very political and corrupt. Not all of them. Some of them were doing a great job. Others were not. So you have centralization, decentralization. Then in 2002, uh, after Mayor Bloomberg's election, he asked the legislature to give him control of the school system. What he asked for was not what other mayors had had, which was a limited power to appoint members to an independent board, but rather total control uh, to give him the majority of the board appointments who would then serve at his pleasure. 
And then instead of having an independent board appointing the school's chancellor, it was the job of the mayor to choose the school's chancellor. So the mayor, Mayor Bloomberg, got persuaded the legislature to give him a degree of really authoritarian control that had never existed, where the uh, he even changed the name of the Board of Education. Instead of being called the Board of Education, referring to an entire agency that was quasi-independent, he called it the Department of Education. And he meant it to be just like the police department, the sanitation department, uh, the transportation department, simply one more mayoral agency where he had total control and could choose the leadership and set the policy agenda. And the board, which is still in law called the Board of Education, has no independence, uh, and it serves at his pleasure, at least the majority does. So there has been uh, quite a change. And I just last night wrote a paper uh, uh, that can be used if they wanted at the hearings uh, of the assembly committee looking at this and said there has to be some restoration of democracy. There has to be some place where citizens can go, where parents can go and have their voices heard about what they see as being wrong in the school system uh, because the current system is a degree of authoritarianism uh, that we have never seen before. And the city school system should not be modeled on on the sanitation department or the transportation department. It is not simply a city agency, Uh, there has to be some uh, representativeness to the people who are on the board. I believe an independent board should be reestablished, that the mayor should have appointments to that board. Uh, Whether he should have a majority or not doesn't seem to me all that important as long as his appointments are run through a screening committee where he can't just stack the board with cronies. Uh, as uh, as the current law allows him to do. So one of the one of the issues on about this is that actually the the board of education or the department of education is not exactly like other city agencies, because the mayor gets his authority directly from the state. The city council has can provide no real checks and balances over his authority and cannot make law when it comes to policies. For instance, the city council can make laws when it comes to the police or to the housing agencies or to to the, uh, the health department, but they can't make laws that affect policy when it comes to our schools. And so in this way, the mayor actually is more of an authoritarian and has more unchecked power than he does over any other agency, which I believe is really, really um, a dysfunctional way to govern because checks and balances are are really the the beauty of our democratic system, and we don't want um, you know one man or one woman making decisions alone. Um, the the mayor Bloomberg and also Mayor De Blasio have also fired his own appointees when they opposed him. And that, that is another um, example of something that, that I think needs to change. I have. Well, I, I agree with you, yeah. Laney. And actually, when I wrote my letter to the uh, Assembly Committee, I quoted you and uh, to that effect, that the uh, Board of Education or the school system is too important to make it simply a, a playing field for the, uh, the whims and wishes of the mayor. And uh, if we had had an independent Board of Education, we have never, would never have – I don't think they ever would have chosen Joel Klein, who was completely unqualified, who had no experience in education at, whatsoever, uh, and nor would they have chosen uh, the second pick of Mayor Bloomberg, uh, a publisher named Kathy Black, who lasted only 90 days. Yeah. Uh, none of the people that Mayor Bloomberg chose were educators. 
and, and then they simply carried out his orders. Orders, and there's something wrong with that. In, in our democracy, we really don't uh, have decisions made of huge consequence simply based on the whim of one man or one woman. And that's the way the New York City schools are being run now. Is uh, I mean, the mayor certainly has enough on his plate uh, without having to run the school system. That's a full-time job for an in- independent board and for a highly qualified chancellor who has experience in education. Do you have any theory as to why New York City doesn't have an elected school board? I believe every other district in the state and the vast majority of districts throughout the country actually have more direct democracy and elected school boards. Um, yeah, why the is reason it, that yeah. New York City doesn't have an elected school board is that there have been, uh, there, there were in the past elected school boards and participation was very, very low. Uh, the reason being that uh, most people don't have children in the school system. Uh, many people who have children in the school system uh, don't vote. And so when elections were held, uh, they were never held for the central board, but there were elections for local school boards. And the participation rate was well under 10%. And that was back in the 19th century and then briefly uh, in the 1960s, there was an effort to have elected local boards And participation was so low that the uh, people in office decided that it really was not representative and that it would be more representative to have appointed local boards and an appointed central board than one that was chosen by 4% of the people in the district. Uh, There also was concern that any organized group, and they were thinking in particular of the teachers' union, would be able to capture any school board because of the low turnout. So that was why... uh, the elections were tried and and not and, and eventually just didn't stick. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have low turnout in many elections in New York City and low turnout across the country on school board races in many places as well. And it's the well, cent- as you know, that Chicago is about which was one of the first cities to have an, a mayoral control board is about to return to an elected school board. And education activists in Chicago have been advocating on behalf of an elected school board for many, many years, particularly because uh, first Mayor Daley and then Rahm Emanuel uh, used their power to close public schools and replace them with charter schools. And there was such a backlash against that uh, and also against the uh, longstanding underinvestment in in the schools uh, that the two people who were running for mayor in the last Chicago election pledged to uh, to support an elected school board and uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who uh, was recently elected, said she, she does support an elected school board. It was one of the demands in a teacher strike in Chicago, and um, there will be an elected school board in Chicago before long. And Chicago has had mayoral control long before New York City did. So yeah, they've also been moving back to an elected school board in Detroit and Newark and a couple of other places. I'm just wondering whether it can ever happen here because I continue to think that, that the fact that we don't have one here really does cut down on democracy and public participation and well, the kind you, of – you can uh, expect that if we ever got an elected school board that – the problem is most people, if you ask New Yorkers what school district do you live in, most people have no idea. And um, there is a lot of transiency in this in this city and with a city of 8 million or 8.5 million people, it's very hard to get education issues on anyone's mind other than people who are parents or who are directly involved. And it may be that those are the people who should elect the school board, but 
uh, I think at some point maybe we'll go back to an elected board, but the, the past history is that uh, uh, the participation rate was so low that uh, there wasn't much um, enthusiasm for it. But I don't think there should be any enthusiasm for mayoral control because uh, there's something inherently wrong about having an agency that's simply the, the mayor's thing, his yeah. hobby, his plaything. So this is Talk Out of School with your host, Laini Hameson, on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM or WBAI.org. In a second, we're going to ask Diane about presidential politics, which are really heating up right now. But meanwhile, please remember to become a WBAI buddy to our show, Talk Out of School, by logging into GiveToWBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602. Again, that's 516-620-3602. I'm Laney Hameson, and this is Talk Out of School on WBAI-FM. So now we're back with Diane, um, who's written a new book called Slaying Goliath. She's also the founder of Network for Public Education, a national advocacy group on whose board I sit. Can you tell us a little bit about NPE and why you decided to start this group? Sure. Um, back in uh, nineteen, sorry, back in twenty twelve, uh, we were in the, the the nation was in the grip of this uh, so called reform movement where public schools were being closed, charter schools were being opened, and a lot of us who were concerned about the drift of public policy, and particularly the Obama policy, which was exactly the same as the Bush policy, and that was to focus on testing and choice, testing and choice. And uh, th- There began to be uh, uh, demonstrations, people getting together and saying we have to do something. And at one of these uh, demonstrations, it was actually a, a march on Washington, uh, I met Anthony Cody, who was at that time a, a middle school teacher in Oakland, California. And Anthony and I talked about uh, creating an organization, and we eventually uh, got the founding papers to create something called the Network for Public Education. We used the term network very carefully because we did not intend to be, we had no money, so we didn't intend to be an organization that would have a, a staff and offices and run some kind of lobbying program. But we wanted to create some kind of resistance to what we could clearly see was the billionaire-funded effort to capture public education and privatize it. And uh, Anthony Cody had written uh, on his blog uh, passionate letters about the to, the to the Gates Foundation and had engaged in dialogue with the Gates Foundation about the mistakes they were making in imposing their uh, really bad ideas on public schools across the country. So Anthony and I had a lot in common in terms of our ideas about uh, preserving, not just preserving, but improving public schools and fighting back against this billionaire-funded putsch, this effort to uh, take control of public education. And we created the network with the idea that we would be able to uh, facilitate the groups across the country that were alone and fighting against their state legislature's similar policies, and that we could somehow create a synergy amongst all these different groups and become a force just by dint of enthusiasm and commitment and passion and it worked. I mean, we originally wanted to create a PAC, but we never had any money, so a PAC didn't make much sense. 
But we did eventually get uh, a charitable organization called the Network for Public Education, and then in time we were able to develop a political arm called the Network for Public Education Action Fund. We don't give money to candidates, but we identify candidates who are pro-public education and endorse them. And this turns out to be incredibly important because in elections all over the country, uh, there are candidates who are funded by Wall Street, by hedge fund managers, by stealth organizations like uh, Democrats for Education Reform, uh, who are often not even Democrats and certainly are not promoting education reform. They just want charters. So there's, for the public, it's very confusing when you have a group that says, we want education reform now, but then it turns out they're all hedge fund managers. Or we're Democrats for education reform, and they're all hedge fund managers, and they're pouring millions and millions of dollars into local school board races. And so we wanted to have a way of saying these candidates whom we have reviewed are really in favor of public education, and the others are uh, basically tools of, of this Democrats for education reform, Wall Street hedge fund managers, the billionaires. I mean, there is an organized political force that is opposed to public education under democratic control. There is no question about that. And that's what I do in my book is to name them uh, and identify the amount of money that's being poured into this campaign. I have to understand that when I say a lot of money, I'm talking about a family like the Walton family who are collectively worth almost $200 billion. So when they decide to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on charter schools all over the country, and the Waltons have funded one out of every four charter schools in the country, this is like crumbs off their table. If they spend a billion dollars, well, they're making $4 million every single hour, 24-7. So it doesn't really mean anything to them. And they will give a million dollars to NPR to make sure that they get some good coverage of choice issues. They will give they will underwrite education organizations across the country, as Bill Gates has. So all this, these millions from Gates, from Bloomberg, from uh, the Waltons, from uh, Charles Koch are being spent, and uh, we felt there has to be a countervailing voice. We knew that we didn't have the big megaphone, uh, but what we have been able to do with uh, a wonderful board and with contacts in every single state in the country is to create a pushback. And so we have some four, almost 400,000 followers and the number keeps growing. And we have been able to bring the issue of charter schools to the fore. I mean, it is no accident that charter schools right now in the Democratic presidential race, the charter schools are a very controversial issue. Mm-hmm. Well, they weren't controversial when Obama was president because Obama and his secretary, Arne Duncan, and his last secretary, John King, loved charter schools. And they made it into a bipartisan issue that support for charter schools was great and uh, public schools were failing and so forth. And, but what we have been able to do, working with lots and lots of partners all over the country, is to change the debate and say charter schools take money away from public schools, and it makes no sense to defund the schools that 90% of the kids are attending so that uh, 6% of the kids can make choices particularly when many of those charter schools are really terrible schools and won't even survive the year. Uh, Now, the face of the so-called reform movement today is Betsy DeVos, who is the most disliked member of the horrible Trump cabinet. So it's easier to make that case today because to embrace charter schools is to embrace Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump. Uh, But during the Obama years, it was very difficult to fight against charters because – 
uh, we were being told again and again that charters were a civil rights issue. They served the needs of the uh, children of, of color. And, but behind the mask was the Walton Foundation. And the Walton Foundation has one million employees, and they could change poverty in this country if they simply paid their workers a living wage, 15 or $20 an hour, instead of uh, underpaying them and limiting the number of hours they can work to less than a full-time job. Right. So, um, you know, what my book is about is the, the pushback, and I see the pushback continuing every day where uh, in city after city, uh, and community after community, people who want to reclaim their public schools and make them better uh, are winning the debate. And, and uh, vouchers, every time they're on the ballot, get voted down, and yet the state of Ohio just expanded their voucher program. If they put it to a referendum, uh, that would go down too. So one of, the, the, one of the issues about charters that is really important that I think people need to understand is that many of them also have very – harsh discipline problems, suspend huge numbers of students, and are even abusive to many of the kids that they serve, so that we really need more accountability and oversight into um, the way they treat students. And one of the, another issue, which I think NPE has been very influential in um, drawing attention to, is the way that many charter schools have been uh, plagued by corruption and fraud. And much of the money that has been spent by taxpayers has gone into the pockets of some of the charter operators or um, their vendors. Um, one uh, Next week, we'll be talking to Carol Burris, who is the executive director of Network for Public Education, about the new report they just put out about how a, about a, a billion dollars or more has been given to charter schools by the federal government for schools that never opened or quickly closed. And if you're interested in that report, it's at the Network for Public Education website right now. As I said, we'll be talking more about it next week. But this has really become an issue, as Diane mentioned, in the presidential campaigns among the different Democrats who are vying for that position. Um, this Saturday in Pittsburgh, um, most of the de presidential candidates are going to be talking about public education in Pittsburgh. And um, it's going to be, I think, a full-day event that's going to be live-streamed starting at about 9.45 a.m. on MSNBC and NBC News Now. And I really urge people to spend some time watching um, that forum. It's not a formal debate, but each of the candidates in turn is going to answer questions from the moderators and from the audience. Um, Diane, what should people pay attention to when they're watching these candidates and what they say? What are some of the issues that you think will come up, and, and how should we evaluate their responses? Well, the, the biggest issue in American education, in my view, is to properly fund the schools. And what we've had instead of uh, raising the funding on the schools has been the push for change in governance or structural change. And so the, um, these, these disruption groups have said uh, that, first of all, they want to minimize uh, democratic control. They don't like locally elected school boards, and they prefer charter schools because they're run by corporate groups. So the first thing is to um, make sure that the candidates that you're watching are advocating for a substantial increase in federal funding for the neediest kids, particularly 
appropriately funding uh, Title I, and that's the money that goes to poor kids, and also funding special education. Uh, when special education was passed as a congressional program back in the 1970s, Congress agreed to pay for 40% of the cost. It has never paid more than 10 or 12% of the cost. So funding special education would take a huge burden off of local school districts and allow them to do uh, the things that they should be doing to making sure, making sure that class sizes are smaller and that they're able to pay their teachers appropriately. Uh, when it comes to the issue of charters, the thing to watch for is, first of all, um, Democrats should be against charters. They should say there is room for charters when they are appropriately accountable and transparent. And there are some good charters. I always have to say there are some good charters run by responsible people. But there has been no effort, none whatsoever, to rein in the uh, corrupt grifters who have invaded the charter sector. And some of them are running charter schools. Some of them are running charter management organizations. And when a candidate says, I'm against for-profit charters, they're not telling the truth because there, there are actually very few for-profit charters uh, there are, however, uh, very large numbers of charters that are managed by for-profit charter organizations. So the management is for-profit, even if the charter is not. And the other kind of so hidden, what should they hidden, say? What um, should they be saying then? Debate about for-profit versus non-profit is that some charter leaders are, are getting exorbitant salaries, uh, six hundred thousand, seven hundred thousand, uh, twice or three times what the local school district uh, superintendent is. So, in my view, if we took the greed out of the charter movement, we might be left with, with good charters. Uh, charters should be held accountable. They should be held to the same laws about student civil rights and student discipline as public schools are. And uh, the good charters won't have any problem with that. Um, the candidates who have been most forceful in questioning the role of charters and in regulating them and making sure that they're honest uh, or Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Um, the other candidates have said kind of wishy-washy things about being against for-profit charters, but that's not meaningful because, as I said, uh, the charters themselves may be not for-profit, but their management company in many cases is for-profit. Uh, the, the textbook case of that would be Mi the state of Michigan. They don't have any uh, for-profit charters, but 80% of their charters, 80% of their charters are run by for-profit organizations. Uh, which skim a lot of money off out of the schools to pay their investors off. So it isn't just a matter of banning for-profit charters. It's also a matter of banning for-profit charter organizations, taking the profit out of education uh, management altogether, and uh, also making sure that charters are held accountable both for their financial and their academic results. And I think that um, any candidate who's not willing to say that is not being serious about supporting public education. Uh, I have to add that I just last night I read an article about Pete Buttigieg, uh, who made me uneasy, first of all, because he has the McKinsey background, but you can't really hold that against him uh, because McKinsey chooses what they think are the best and brightest. But I realized early on when I talked to people in his campaign that he was listening to the Obama team, which was very pro-charter and uh, very aligned with Betsy DeVos in, in their view of charters. And then I learned last night reading an article on Vice News uh, by Rachel Cohen uh, that Buttigieg is being funded by major charter-friendly billionaires and charter activists. So that concerned me about him. So I'll, I'll particularly... 
be interested in, in uh, how he handles issues about charters, and I expect what he'll say is he's against for-profit charters. And as I said, that's not a, really a satisfactory answer. He has to talk about accountability and transparency and charters meeting the same civil rights laws and, and uh, school discipline laws as are required of, of public schools. You know, I, I think a lot of people have just been deceived by the charters because it sounds so good to say you're going to save poor kids from failing schools. Everybody uh, thinks that's a nice idea. But then when it turns out that the charter organization, uh, the, the man or woman running it is being paid $700,000 a year, uh, you begin to think, well, maybe they're in it for the money, not for, not for the kids. You find out that they're kicking out kids who have disabilities uh, and then sending them to the public schools are that they accept 100 kids, but only 18 or 20 of them actually make it through to graduation, you realize it's a winnowing process. Right. And so the fundamental issue that I hit on in my book, in Slaying Goliath, is that the charter movement and the voucher movement together are being funded by people who are right-wing libertarians. And they may not call themselves that, but they are, in fact, opposed to government services. And, I, you know, I, I think... It's insane to think that we can have a healthy democracy where we don't have a healthy public sector as well as a healthy private sector. And the attack on public education right now, the effort to privatize it, is really a threat to our democracy as well as a threat to uh, the access to a universal and high-quality school system because we cannot run two publicly funded school systems and expect either of them to be of any quality or in the case of if you add vouchers in, where we're, uh, which go to religious schools, uh, we would, would have three different uh, right. publicly funded systems. And if you want to see the failure of that, all you have to do is look at Milwaukee, where for the last 25 or 30 years, uh, the city of Milwaukee has had charters, vouchers, and a public system. The public system has become poorer and poorer. Uh, it's overloaded with kids with disabilities because the voucher schools, the religious schools don't want them. The charters don't want them. And all three sectors, whether they're voucher, religious schools, or charter schools, or public schools, they're all doing very poorly. So it makes no sense for the public to fund three competing sectors uh, when we should be investing in one strong, high-quality public sector. Now uh, we'd like to open up the phone lines to your questions and concerns. And um, please focus on questions to Diane Ravitch, if you can, and some of the issues we've been talking about. The number here is 212-209-2877. That's, again, 212-209-2877. One of the other points about charter schools that I'd like to make is that um, not only do they drain a huge amount of money from the public school system here in New York City, they siphon off more than $2.1 billion a year, plus a lot of the space in our public schools, which are chronically overcrowded already. Um, but also the fact is that the the people I've met as, as, as a parent who are most vehemently um, opposed to charter schools and charter expansion are former charter school parents who felt, felt that their rights and their children's rights were abused over and over again by the charter schools that their kids attended. And there are, I think, five federal lawsuits right now against various charter schools, 
for their abuse of, st- of, of student rights, for not, for repeatedly suspending them, for not giving them um, the proper um, uh, uh, special education services that they deserve, for a whole pile of reasons um, that are very, very um, important. And that one of the things that, that I'm pushing for and that I think NPE and Diane are pushing for is that accountability to make sure that charter schools respect their students' rights. And if that were adopted, that would be good for not just the public schools, but for the charter schools and their students as well. So um, we do have uh, uh, someone on the line who would like to ask a question. Um, can you say your name and where you're from and what your question is? Yeah, old Gerald. I'm from Brooklyn. I call it Brooklyn. And my question is regarding how do we sit back and watch? Thank you very much. Very good report on the, the changing the board of education. It shows very shows the intent of uh, Bloomberg when we change the Department of Education and real estate wise. That gives a green light for everyone to come. So tell me, how did we allow this to happen in 2005? And all the public officials sat back and we sat back and watched Bloomberg sell um, 110 Limington Street, um, the board of education sold to. Bloomberg got control of the Board of Education. His sister or daughter, someone in his family, was able to buy 110 Livingston Street and turn it into a luxury housing. Wasn't the writing all over the wall for the rich when that happened? So I'm not sure that that's true about 110 Livingston Street. It was sold off and became luxury condos. I'm not sure. I've never heard before that any of his relatives profited off of that particular deal. At the time, I think a lot of people were against him selling off that building because many of our schools are still very overcrowded, and that probably could have served as a nice large high school. But Diane, you want to talk about some of the political forces that contributed to the uh, the legislature voting for really unchecked mayoral control, I think it was in 2002, 2003? Uh, you know, uh, I think that the, the big issue it usually comes down to money. And in some cases, it may be profit. I don't think that's the case with Bloomberg. I mean, Bloomberg is one of the richest men in the world. He's worth more than $50 billion. I mean, never in, in 10 lifetimes or maybe many more lifetimes could he ever spend what he has now. So I, I've never thought that he uh, or any of these other billionaires were doing this um, attack on public education because of wanting to make money, they already have enough money. What they are, uh, what they do appeal to, though, is a certain kind of fundamentalist belief that the market will solve all problems. And they believe in the public, in the private sector. They don't believe in the public sector. And it's kind of odd when somebody is the mayor to say that he believes the private sector can do a better job than he can, because that's really kind of saying, please take away my responsibilities. But Bloomberg, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, um, the Walton family, all these billionaires think that if you just turn the schools over to the private sector, they will do better. We now have had almost 30 years of experience with charter schools. We know this isn't true. Uh, The charters are – study after study has said if they are enrolling the same kids as public schools, they don't get better results, and they very often get much worse results. I've seen many states where the worst schools in the state – are the charter schools because they have no accountability. Uh, they have they have teachers who are basically inexperienced and unqualified, many of these states. So in order to have a good education system, 
it really is very straightforward. You have to have the funding for the kids that are enrolled. You have to have experienced and and well uh, compensated teachers who are treated as professionals. You have to have class sizes that are reasonable and that are appropriate for the children. Uh, where children have special needs, where they need extra help, the class sizes should be very small as they are in the private schools that these same very wealthy people choose for their own children. So it's not very complicated, but they have simply muddied the waters by saying that uh, the private sector knows best because the private sector doesn't know best. I, mean, I mentioned at the beginning of the interview that they're not reformers, they are disruptors. And in the private sector, in the corporate world, they actually believe that disruption is a good thing. Right. I was one time going on to an interview at a, on a TV program, and the person who went on before me was the CEO of Cisco, and he said, we disrupt ourselves every two years, and that's very good for our business. And I thought, but that's horrible for the life of a child. You don't want to disrupt children's lives. You don't want to disrupt their school. Right. You want to have stability. You want to have them know that the people who care about them who are here today will also be here tomorrow. That's called stability. Right. We have a lot of a lot of people who want to ask questions. So um, sure, go ahead. Let's uh, let's get another questioner on the line. Uh, could you say your name and where you're from? You're from and where your question is. You're on the air. Good morning. I'm from uh, Harlem, New York. My name is uh, Asaw. The question I would like to ask the uh, I guess the host so could be presented to either one of you. What was the reason behind the struggle of uh, Ocean Hill-Brownville, number two? Okay, Laney, I can't hear the... Yeah, he's a little bit low. He said, what what was the struggle behind Ocean Hill-Brownsville around? Yeah, what was the the, the reason for the struggle? And the second question, and then I'm going to hang up, is do either one of you all believe that the, the school system in any state or any place in the world it's, it's, it's like a, an instrument that the state has to seize so that they can direct the children's awareness or attention towards industry or towards corporations or towards making money. And this is basically all I have to say. And both of you all have a good morning, and it's a wonderful, wonderful program. Thank you for your question, Diane. Okay, thank you. So there's a long history behind Ocean Hill Brownsville. I wrote a book about it called The Great School Wars. Basically, the city had been promising to desegregate the schools, and they were not desegregated. In fact, there was massive white flight from the city and from the schools in the 1960s, and there were people in the black community who became very disgusted with the Board of Education, and they said, if we can't have desegregation, we want community control. And so uh, Ocean Hill-Brownsville was funded by the Ford Foundation, along with two other districts, for an experiment in community control. And uh, the, the Rody McCoy, who was the, the district leader or the superintendent of Ocean Hill-Brownsville, uh, fired a, uh, a lot of union teachers, and then the union went out on strike and was on strike for two months. And that led to the legislature uh, deciding to decentralize the school system. They didn't actually... They didn't allow community control, uh, but they changed the governance of the system to make it more decentralized. It was not an answer to anything. And and, and so the other question had to do with uh, targeting students to be more servants of corporations. 
Um, I think that the answer to that is that there's always a big focus among about workforce. College and career ready was one of uh, is one of the uh, Bill Gates's primary goals, and I think that there's a danger in that because you don't want to make education too focused on the needs of corporations in order to train workers. You really want to encourage kids to find their own way to use their cre- critical thinking and to find their futures for themselves as as well as they can. Uh, do we have another caller? We don't have another caller on the phone. Um, we really do have to wrap up now. Um, Diane has been our guest talking about her upcoming book, Slaying Goliath, which you can pre-order now. Um, Diane also has a blog where she blogs several times a day at dianeravage.net, which I think is a must-read if you're interested in keeping up with the latest education issues. Um, You can also subscribe to our show, uh, Talk Out of School, uh, as a podcast, wherever you subscribe to podcasts. And we want you to become a WBA buddy for our, our show by logging into give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602. Again, thank you so much, Diane, for being here, for being my guest. You have a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, which I learn from you every single day. Um, we hope that you'll join us next Wednesday, December 18th at 10 a.m., where we'll be talking with Carol Burris, who co-hosts the show with me in her new report on the Federal Charter School Grant Program, and also Eric Blanc, author of Red State Revolt, which is a great book. Um, He'll be talking about recent teacher strikes in both red and blue states, what's motivating them, and what he predicts for the future in terms of more strikes. And thanks so much for listening in. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Open your books. Keep it the teacher don't know how mean she looks. Soon as three o'clock rolls around, you finally lay your burden down. Close up your books, get out of your seat. Down the halls and into the street. Up to the corner and round the bend. Right to the juke joint, you go in. Drop the coin right into the slot. You gotta hear something that's really hot With the one you love, you're making romance All day long you've been wanting to dance Feeling the music from heaven